tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable, saying, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I tell you that in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, if she has ten silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? When she has found it, she calls together her friends and her neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, A man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country and he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating and no one was giving anything to him. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread? But I am dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf, kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. Father, we pray that as a result of what you are going to say to us now, that the angels in heaven might have occasion today to celebrate. As sinners who have wandered far away from home, from their heavenly Father, return. Maybe some in this room who have once walked with you and who've wandered and they would return. And maybe some in this room who've never really walked with you. They've never known the fellowship of your son Jesus. That they would come and that there would be celebrating. And we pray, Father, that the celebrating in heaven would be in, in some measure matched by the celebration that would happen here. That we would be not like the Pharisees, but like the angels in heaven rejoicing. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd simply like this morning to point out five things to you. As I said, there, there are many things that we could say and point out uh, from this passage that we won't have time for this morning. But five, five things 
uh, to say five statements about the Father. This story uh, is about the Heavenly Father, particularly the story of the lost Son. Now, it just happens to be Father's Day. We didn't time it out that way on purpose. Um, But five things to say about our Father who is in heaven and the way He relates to lost sheep, lost coins, lost sons and daughters. The first thing I want to show you is the Father's commitment to sinners. The Father's commitment to sinners. Now, that's the main point of this whole chapter. But let me just demonstrate it to you from the first three verses. Now, all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to hear are coming near to him to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. Jesus begins to tell a parable because of who is gathered there and because of what they're doing, because of what they're saying. And I want you to notice who's gathered in this crowd on this day when Jesus tells these stories. First, you have sinners. The sinners are listening. Verse 1, they're listening. Of course they're listening. Jesus taught like no one else taught. Jesus taught with authority, we read at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, not like the scribes and the Pharisees. Jesus came and He said things that actually made sense. He said things that actually matched up with God's Word. And the people listened and they said, this is amazing. He's teaching with authority. He's teaching in a way that we can understand. He's teaching what God says and not just what He wants and what will build His own little kingdom. People listen to Jesus. And I want you to notice now that he wasn't sweet-talking them. They didn't come to listen because he was giving them a nice uh, pumped-up message that would make them all go home and say, aren't, aren't we great? Isn't it great uh, to be us? Look at verse 26 of chapter 14. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And then look at verse 33 of chapter 14. So then none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Jesus wasn't teaching easy things here. They weren't coming to listen to him because he was patting them on the back and telling them everything was okay. He was preaching difficult things, but he was doing so from the word of God with authority in a way that they could understand. So of course they're listening. Of course they're listening. And they're listening also because he'd shown mercy to people like them again and again and again. We saw last week the woman at the well. A woman whom the Pharisees never would have even looked at, much less spoken to, much less drank from the same bucket, much less offered her God's forgiveness. Those are the kind of people that Jesus showed mercy to. The tax collectors and the sinners. So of course they're listening. That's a hint to us as we share the gospel, isn't it? People will listen if we speak to them like Jesus spoke. So the, the, the sinners and the tax collectors are listening, but in verse 2, the Pharisees and the scribes are livid. They're angry. Why are they angry? They're grumbling, it says, because Jesus received sinners and ate with them. And in their minds, religiously, that was impossible. How could you eat with a sinner? How could you receive a sinner? So they were angry with Jesus for religious reasons, but probably even more so for personal reasons. Because the fact that Jesus was receiving and eating with tax collectors and sinners meant that he wasn't receiving and eating with the Pharisees and the scribes. He wasn't kissing their feet like they wanted everyone to do. He wasn't telling them how wonderful they are. He wasn't coming along and patting them on the back. And they hated that. Because their whole system was designed so that people would pat them on the back, so that people would clear out of the way when they came down the path and say, Oh, Look at him. 
I can never be like him. And Jesus didn't do that. So the sinners are listening. The Pharisees are livid. And then in verse 3 and following, Jesus is simply logical. He begins to tell them stories that have obvious answers. In other words, he knows that the Pharisees and the tax collectors are muttering under their breath, I can't believe he's spending time with people like this. I can't believe that he's spending time with sinners. And so Jesus tells him one story in verses 4 through 7 that basically says to him this, aren't people more important than sheep? Aren't they? I mean, if you had a hundred sheep, he's saying to the Pharisees, and one of your sheep went astray, you'd go look for that sheep. Shouldn't God look for people made in his own image who have gone astray and seek to bring them back? Of course he should. And then he tells them another story. He says, aren't people more important than coins? Of course they are. And again, he's saying to these scribes and Pharisees, if your wife had a bunch of coins that were important to her and she lost one of them, she'd look for the coin, wouldn't she? She'd sweep the house. She'd turn on the lamp. She'd move the furniture around. She'd find the coin. Shouldn't God search after human beings who are created in his own image, who are lost and need to be found? Of course he should. And then he tells a third logical story. A man had two sons. One of them went astray. Shouldn't a father still love his son? Even if his son goes off to a distant country and squanders his father's estate with loose living, shouldn't a father still love his son? Of course he should. And why shouldn't God love the people whom he's created? Jesus is just being logical with these Pharisees and saying, of course I spend time with tax collectors and sinners. Of course this is the people that I'm with because the Father, my Father in heaven, loves them. Of course this is who I spend time with. And so the application for us maybe is twofold here in this first section, the Father's commitment to sinners, because there are two groups of people that are listening in Jesus' setting and in ours. There are people here today who uh, may be prodigal sons and daughters who've wandered from God and you know that you need to come back to Him and you're listening one way. And then there are others of us who may be like the Pharisees and the scribes this morning, very religious, thinking we have all of our ducks in a row and we're listening in a completely different way. Or actually, we're not listening very careful at all. We need to start. But what Jesus is saying at the very outset here to the tax collectors and the, and the sinners with these stories is, is that they can think in their minds and know in their hearts, maybe I haven't sinned my way out of the Father's love. Maybe I haven't gone so far that I couldn't come back. Maybe God does want to forgive me. Maybe this Messiah is for me. And the Pharisees and the scribes, on the other hand, should be hearing or thinking something like this in their heads. Maybe I ought to be lovingly committed to these kind of people as well. Some of us have come to the Father. We've lived much of our lives in the Father's house, and that's a good thing. But we need to remind ourselves that there are lots of people on the outside that we haven't maybe been very committed to and loving towards. And we look at them with disdain because they haven't been obeying and honoring our Father. But the attitude Jesus is calling the Pharisees to is one of commitment. The same attitude that he himself has, the same attitude that the Father in heaven has towards sinners. The Father is committed to sinners. Secondly, though, I want you to see the Father's concern for the individual. The Father's concern for the individual. Look at verse 4. What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it. 
Now, at first, that's kind of an odd scenario, isn't it? It can throw you off when you first read it and pose some questions. How is it that he can have a hundred sheep and he loses one and he leaves 99 on the hillside and goes and just searches for the one? That doesn't make sense uh, to us when we first read it. Why does he leave 99 by themselves? Some people would read this and say, well, it's not a very good business decision. I mean, 1% profit margin that you're going to lose on one sheep? Just let that sheep go and make sure the 99 are taken care of. But I'll remind you that the Father in heaven doesn't run a business. He's a father who deals with individual souls and loves individual souls. And so, of course, he goes and searches for one who is lost, even if it's only one. And some other people read this, and it's just simply kind of a logistical question. How is it that he goes to find the one and he leaves the 99 unattended? He's going to come back with the one and the 99 are going to be lost now. Well, probably in a a sheepfold this size with 100 sheep, he would have had someone else helping him. Um, surely um, that's what Jesus intends here, not that he leaves the sheep by themselves, but that he leaves them with someone else and he goes out himself and does the searching himself. And he does it himself because they're his sheep and he cares for them. And he wants to make sure he finds this one. So that may throw us off as well, but don't let that cause you to stumble. And remember, this is just an analogy. God is everywhere. So if God quote-unquote, leaves the 99 on the hillside to go find the one. He's still on the hillside as he's going to find the one. God is everywhere. But once we get past the things that might trip us up, once we get past the oddity of of how can you leave 99 and and only go after one, uh, we can start to see the beauty of this story, can't we? Because to a good shepherd, a hundred sheep is not merely a statistic. A hundred sheep doesn't just equate to a certain amount of dollars if he's a good shepherd. Because sheep aren't cars, and sheep aren't widgets, and sheep aren't computers that you have in your store and sell. You say, I've got a hundred computers, and therefore I know that I've got X thousand dollars worth of merchandise here. Sheep are different. Shepherds are different. If a shepherd has a hundred sheep, he will love them, and he will know them each individually. Just like if you have several uh, pets You'll know them all individually. They're not just stray animals running around your house. You love your pet if you have a pet. That's why I don't have one. I don't love them. Um, But if you have one, you would love your pet. And if you were a shepherd, you would love your sheep. If you were a shepherd who loved your sheep, you would have delivered these sheep. When they were born, you would have been the one into whose hands they fell. You would know which one had a blind eye or which one had a cracked hoof. Probably, possibly at least, they would have names. I think I've told you this story before about a girl that we knew when we lived in Mississippi. She was from McMinnville, Tennessee, and uh, apparently that's a rural farming type area. And uh, her father was a dairy farmer, and they had all these dairy cows. And I said, well, how do you round them all up in the morning? What do you do to get them all in there to milk them? And she said, you just call their name. Said, so you got how many cows? And it was a bunch. I can't remember the number. It was a lot of cows. You call their name? Yeah, you call out Bessie or whatever it is, and the cow comes. And this is the way a good shepherd is with his sheep. And this is the way the Heavenly Father is with his sheep as well. We read in Revelation, we know that there are myriads of myriads around the throne. There's a number around God's throne in heaven that cannot be counted, but God knows every single face. 
and every single voice. And when the voices are singing and the song is being heard in heaven, God has the ability, because He knows every individual, to pick out every individual voice and say, I can hear Scott, and I can hear Roger, and I can hear Philomena, and I can hear, and I can hear, and I can hear. He knows His sheep individually. He knows everything about us. He knows the hairs on our heads. He knows which ones of us are struggling this morning and which ones of us are on the mountaintop. He's concerned with the individual. Sheep don't represent a statistical margin for a shepherd. And individuals don't represent a statistical margin for the Heavenly Father. Every individual number, however many people there are in this room, for the Heavenly Father doesn't just represent a number that we had today, but they all represent a face that He Himself formed and a name that He has always known and a history that He has shaped and a life that He has determined to rescue. Determined to the point where He would give His own Son for that purpose. And so again, we think to ourselves, we hear this story, the Father is concerned for individuals. What should we do with that? And there are two different kinds of people in the audience. The tax collectors and the sinners are listening. And they're saying to themselves, or they should be, and you should be too, God knows my name. God knows everything about me. God is seeking me out. He's not just out on the hillside somewhere looking for any old sheep. He's looking for a specific sheep. And He has worked in my life looking for me specifically. And if you are a believer, you can see how God works specifically in your life, laying out specific breadcrumbs in specific places to bring you to Himself and to bring you to the cross. And maybe you haven't come to Christ, but if you would just step back for a moment, you would see that God has been specifically working your situation to bring you to Himself. God is looking for me, is what the tax collectors and the sinners should be saying at this point. And the scribes and the Pharisees, again, should be, should be questioning themselves. They should be saying, I've been seeing statistics and not individuals. And I need to see individuals. I need to begin to see individual faces and care about individual names and hearts. And some of us do as well. And it's hard. As Wednesday night for me reminded. Somebody said to me recently, Hey, I've noticed that you don't have an attendance board in your church. You know, those little boards that says we had this much money and we had this many people and this many people read their Bible and all that stuff. We don't have that. And uh, one reason is it wouldn't be very impressive um, so we wouldn't want to just hang that up for everybody to see necessarily. But the main reason is because that doesn't really have any significance, does it? You say there were 65 people there. Okay, great. Well, so you go to these pastors' events and they say, how many people in your church? 65. That doesn't mean anything to them. To me, it means 65 individuals. 65 faces that I know, 65 stories that I'm learning better and better as the years go by, 65 hearts in need of grace and mercy and help. Individuals are whom we should care for. All of us need to look around and see around us individuals. Look for those who are hurting. Look for those who are in need of help and so on. So the Father's concern, secondly, for the individual. Thirdly, I want you to see the Father's careful searching. The Father's careful searching. Look at verse 8. 
What woman, if she has ten silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? He's already given us one picture, the shepherd on the hillside, peeking into the holes in the ground, crawling down into the crevices, getting on his belly to get inside the caves and see if he can find his lost sheep. And now he gives us a second picture, a woman in her home, maybe at night, lighting the lamp, carrying it around into the different rooms, looking, sweeping the house, because if you sweep the house, whatever's on the floor will be found. Maybe she's moving the furniture around, looking underneath the bed, looking underneath the sofa, and so on. And the point here is the thoroughness of the search that God does when He comes seeking and saving the lost. And Christ is more thorough than the housewife, isn't He? He's looking for us. He's searching for us. He's moving the furniture around in our lives. I tell people this sometimes. I go to visit people who are in the hospital, people who are unbelievers, and I read them this parable of the lost coin. And I tell them sometimes to get our attention and to seek and find us, God starts to move the furniture around a little bit in our lives. So that maybe it's sickness, or maybe it's the death of a loved one, or maybe it's a relational crisis or a financial crisis, but God moves the furniture around so that we can no longer walk around the room comfortably and ignore the fact that God is in the room. We start looking around. We start noticing things. And sometimes God will do this to get our attention. He's thorough in His search for us. And Christ never bumps into us accidentally. When He's seeking and saving the lost, He doesn't just walk down the road and hope somebody's going to come across the path and He'll meet them just at the right time and maybe He can share uh, the good news with them and draw them to Himself. That's not how it works. We saw that's not how it worked last week with the woman at the well. Jesus was not in Samaria by accident. He had to go to Galilee. He was a good Jew. Jews didn't go through Samaria to get to Galilee. Why did He go to Galilee? Because He knew that He was seeking and searching for this woman. And then He didn't have to stop at that particular well. He didn't have to stop at any well. He tells us later in that passage, I have food to eat that you don't know anything about. My food is to do my Father's will. Same thing with his drink. He didn't have to have water at that moment. Yes, he was weary. Yes, he was thirsty. Yes, that was a legitimate reason for him to stop. But he didn't have to, and he didn't have to stop at that well. Why did he stop for water, and why did he stop at that well in particular? Because he was seeking and searching for this woman whom he knew he was going to be there. And he didn't have to stop there at noon either. We said last week, you go at noon, you don't expect to find lots of people crowded around the well. Jesus didn't have a bucket. He needed to go there when someone was going to be there to draw water for him. He should have gone in the morning. But he didn't go in the morning. He went at noon when he knew that this outcast lady would be there all by herself, drawing water from the well. And he didn't have to send his disciples away for food either. But it seems that he wanted to get them out of the picture so that he could square up with this woman eye to eye and talk to her about her soul. None of that was an accident. It may seem like an accident when you read it in John 4. Oh, what great luck. It wasn't an accident. The Father and the Son are lighting the lamp, sweeping the floor, moving the furniture, getting you to the place where they will meet you and bring you to salvation. This is how it works. And God has done this in some of our lives, getting us to the well, as it were, getting us to that church service or that funeral or that cubicle next to another Christian so that we would come to know Christ. 
shepherd will do whatever it takes to bring his sheep back to himself. Sometimes, if the sheep is unwilling to come and is restless, he will even break the sheep's legs so that he can carry them and bring them back. God may even do that to you. The Father's searching for us is careful searching. It's persistent searching. Sometimes it's painful searching. But all of it is to make sure that as Jesus says in John chapter 6, that all whom the Father gives me will come to me. All whom the Father gives me, Jesus says, will come to me. In other words, when God sets out to seek and save that which is lost, He never comes home and says, I couldn't find them. God is persistent and He is careful and He is 100% infallible in His searching for His people. And that's comforting. And the tax collectors were listening. And they must have said to themselves, could it be that God is searching me out right now? Could it be that the difficulty that I've been facing in the last month or the pain in the relationship that I have right now or the physical suffering that I have endured, could it be that God is searching me out? They must have thought. And what is it that He's wanting to tell me? When He finds me, what is it that He's wanting to say? And you know, the Pharisees should have been saying the same things to themselves. Could it be that God has been searching me out? Some of you are here and you say, well, God's not searching me out. I've already been found. Yes, but sheep continue to stray, don't they? Some of us who are believers may find ourselves in a position where God is searching us out. We need to hear His voice and we need to ask Him what it is that He's trying to say. And we need to come to Him so that He doesn't have to break our legs to get us back home. So the Father's careful searching. Number four, the Father's compassion toward the penitent. The Father's compassion toward the penitent. Now we move into this last story, the story of the lost son. And I want to point out to you, first of all, the boy's penitence, and then secondly, the Father's compassion. Look at the boy's penitence. Verse 17a, he came to his senses. Verse 17b, he remembered his father's love. Verses 18 and 19, he was sorry for the way he had treated his father. And let me just pause there and say those two things always go hand in hand. You'll never be sorry for how you've treated the Heavenly Father until you realize how much He loves you. That's what brings conviction of sin, is realizing the love of the Father and that we've sinned against His love. Not just His wrath, but His love. So he was sorry for the way he treated his dad. And then in verse 20, he got up and he came to his father. These are the steps that anyone must take if they truly come to Christ. They truly come and are forgiven by our Heavenly Father. We must come to our senses. We must realize the depths of the Father's love so deep. The Father's love that He would give His only Son to make a wretch His treasure. We must genuinely be sorry for the way we've treated our Heavenly Father and we must get up and come to Him and say to Him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in Your sight, but would You please take me back? And He will. The tax collectors again listen. The sinners listen. And here's the message that Jesus is giving to them. You must come penitently 
to the Father. Every word in that sentence is important. You must come penitently to the Father. It's not just enough to say, well, the Father accepts sinners and so I must be okay. You must come. You must come. Some people never come. They realize they're in the pig slot and they say to themselves, they hear a message like this, a story like this, and they say, I've got to get myself cleaned up. And so they get out of the pig slot and they clean themselves up a little bit and they think everything's okay, but they never come. Or they're in the pig slot and they realize how bad they've messed up and they feel really awful about it. They're penitent, but they never come. Some of you may be in that boat. You feel terrible about your sins. You've tried to do better, but you've never really given up on yourself and come to the Father through Jesus the Son. You've just said to yourself, I'm going to do it better next time. It won't work. So you must come, he says, you must come penitently. Here's another problem. There are many people, this is probably a greater problem for many of us, there are many people who come to the Father wanting forgiveness, but they're not penitent. They've heard that the Father is merciful. They've heard that He'll throw them a party. They've heard that He'll forgive their sins. And so they don't really feel bad about their sins. They just want forgiveness. And they come to God basically with this kind of attitude. I'm back. Where's my party? No penitence. No hatred of their sin. Jesus says you must come and you must come penitently. And you must come to the Father. And you must come to Him through the Son who laid down His life so that you might come. The scribes and Pharisees are listening too. And Jesus' message to them is the same. You too need to come. Alistair Begg has said, I think, very helpfully, that the one son in the story was ostracized from his dad very far away. And the other son in the story was also ostracized from his dad. He was just very close up. And that was the situation with the Pharisees. They were just as far gone as the tax collectors and the sinners. They just didn't realize it because they were going to the temple every day. And some of you may be just as far gone as the person who's out this morning shooting up heroin. You just don't realize it because you're religious. God is just as meaningless to you as He is to them. But you're religious. Jesus says to us who are religious, you too must come. Being in church is not enough. He doesn't come to the temple in the story. He comes to His Father. The Pharisees were in their own kind of pigsty. It was a religious pigsty. It was a pigsty of of self-help and self-love and selfishness and self-righteousness. But they never come to their senses. And they never realized that the Father loved them. They thought that being right with God was all about doing good works, earning the Father's respect. They never understood the Father's love. They weren't penitent, and they'd never come to Him. This is classically illustrated by the story of the, uh, another story of tax collectors and Pharisees where Jesus says uh, two men went to the temple to pray, one a tax collector and the other a Pharisee. And the tax collector couldn't even look at heaven. He beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And then Jesus goes to the Pharisee and said, the Pharisee stood up, And you can imagine him maybe uh, fixing his suit as he stands up. And then it says something very interesting. He prayed to himself. Father, I thank you I'm not like other people and so on. 
He used the word father, but it says he prayed to himself. See, these men had never come to the father. All their praying was just words out into the air. All their religion was just trying to make themselves look better, feel better, and think better about themselves. So the scribes and the Pharisees, the sinners and the tax collectors, all of them need to come to their senses. They need to realize the Father's love. They need to be sorry for the way that they've treated the Father. And they need to come to Him for forgiveness. And so do we. That's the boy's penitence. What about the Father's compassion? This fourth point is the Father's compassion toward the penitent. So what do we learn about the Father's compassion? Well, just scan through verses 20 through 24 with me. In verse 20, the Father saw Him and ran to meet Him. It's a reminder that our Father is looking for us. He's searching for us. He's not sitting in heaven going, well, I've done everything that needed to be done. And when you decide to get your act together, then we can talk. No, He's searching for us. The Father saw Him. He must have been out on His porch day by day looking for Him. You all heard that uh, kind of uh, story, that illustration when you were children, that the Father was on His porch every day waiting for His Son to come down the road. It must have been something like that. Then, in verse 20 also, it says he embraced him and he kissed him. A reminder of the Father's love that we must realize, we must recognize. Our Father's love is not so much shown by an embrace and a kiss, but by the fact that he sent his Son to the world to embrace us at the cross, to fold us in. Verse 22, he clothed him. He clothed him. The symbol of clothing is very important in the Scriptures. The symbol of clothing is used to describe what God does for sinners when they come to put their faith in Christ. We come to the Father, we come to Christ guilty and filthy, and the description is that God clothes us in the righteousness of His Son. He covers up our filthiness with the Son's righteousness. We come with filthy rags. He gives us A beautiful robe, one that belongs to Christ. Number four, verse 23, he fed him. He fed him. Father doesn't just bring us to himself and say, now you're forgiven, now go out in the field and and work it out yourself. But he nourishes us and he feeds us and he causes us to grow more like himself. And fifthly, he threw a party for him, verse 24. He threw a party for him and the father celebrates over us. And this story is is beautiful, isn't it? And one of the reasons it's beautiful is because it's so unusual. And it's so unusual because all of us on Father's Day know that if we had a son like this and he came back in filthy rags having blown everything on wine, women, and song, we would probably not in our hearts as quickly respond with forgiveness and love as this father did, would we? We wouldn't. In our hearts, we would be angry. In our hearts, we would want to give a lecture. In our hearts, we would maybe want to kick him in the pants a few times. Again, um, the story from these tapes by Alistair Begg, a story that uh, he got from somewhere else. I'm not sure where it comes from. um, But it's a story of a a young boy who'd run away from home, just like this. And uh, he was in the city, and he wandered into a church and began to counsel with the pastor there and The pastor learned the story, and the pastor took him to this story in the Scripture. And he said, now, what you need to do is you need to go back to your father. 
And you need to say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And why don't you see if you go back to your father, if he won't throw a party for you and kill the fattened calf. And so the boy says, okay, and he goes. And a few weeks later, the minister sees him and he says to him, did you go back to your father? Yes. Did you tell him you were sorry? Yes. Did he kill the fattened calf? No, he almost killed the prodigal son. It's a comical story, but it's a true story, isn't it? If our sons or daughters did this and came back to us, we wouldn't respond like the Heavenly Father. Or if we did, it would be with a lot of help from Him. But the Heavenly Father is not like us. He's not like earthly fathers who fail us, who criticize us, who kick us in the pants. The Father's consistent response to penitent sinners is not that He washes His hands of them, but that He waits and watches for them. It's not that He kicks them in the teeth, but that He gives them a kiss on the cheek. It's not judgment, but justification, clothing in the righteousness of Christ. The Father doesn't greet us with a lecture. He greets us with love. He embraces us. When we come to Him, the Father doesn't greet us with fickleness. Well, I'm just not sure what I'm going to do with you, boy. But He greets us with food. And when we come to Him, He doesn't seek to give us a piece of His mind. He gives us instead a party. The Father's not like us. And that's why we can come to Him. And the tax collectors and the sinners listen. And Jesus is saying to them, look what awaits you if you would only get out of the pig slot that you're in and come to your Heavenly Father. Look what awaits you. And to the scribes and the Pharisees, perhaps He's saying something like this. Do you respond to sinners and tax collectors like your father? Or do you respond like the older brother? You know the rest of the story, most of you. The older brother finds out that his younger brother who's blown everything is home and he refuses to come into the party. He's angry. Just like the Pharisees are angry. Some of us, when people come back into our lives or when people who aren't uh, the religious type come into our services, we're not too happy about it. We're not too pleased. And Jesus is putting the question square into our faces this morning. Do you respond to sinners and tax collectors like your father or like the older brother? Fifthly and finally, I want you to see the father's call to rejoicing. The father's call to rejoicing. In all three stories, there's a call to rejoicing. Listen, verse 6. Talking about the shepherd. When he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. Then in verse 9, the woman finds her coin, and when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. And then in verse 22, the father has found his son, and the father said to his slaves, he called to his slaves, Quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his feet and sandals, ring on his hand and sandals on his feet, and bring the fattened calf, kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. All three stories. The shepherd, the housewife, the father, all call for all the people around to come and rejoice that this sinner has come home. And the interpretation of that, verse 7 and verse 10, is that the angels in heaven rejoice. 
When a sinner comes to, to the Heavenly Father, the Father says to the angels in heaven, Hey, let's celebrate. So-and-so has come home. And the other application, interpretation, is that so should the older brother. The older brother should celebrate as well. Listen to verses 31 and 32 at the end of the story. The father speaking to this older brother. He said to him, Son, you've always been with me and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. It's not just the angels who should celebrate. It's not just the father who should celebrate. It's the older brother. It's the church member who should celebrate when the prodigal comes home. Do you rejoice when prodigal children come home? That's easy to say yes to that. What would happen this morning if a smelly homeless man came into our service? Maybe it was a little bit disruptive. Maybe you weren't, a little, weren't quite sure what he was going to do or what he might say. Would you rejoice in that person? Would you greet that person? Sadly, when a visitor comes, whether it's a visitor like that or a man in a three-piece suit, many of us pass them by completely without a word. It's a shame. And how do you respond when a prodigal in your own life wants to come home? Some of you have prodigals in your own life. Maybe they're a child. Maybe it's a brother or sister, cousin. Someone that has left the family, left you in a lurch, hurt you, and then they call you. How are you going to respond? Or maybe even more importantly, maybe they haven't called you. And the question is, are you out in the fields looking for that lost sheep? Are you content with what you have? Are you underneath the bed, sweeping underneath there, getting the dust bunnies out, seeing if you can find the lost coin? Are you out in the highways and the hedges with your Heavenly Father looking for the lost sons and daughters? Or maybe, as we've been saying, you're the lost son or the lost daughter yourself. Maybe it hasn't been obvious to everyone. It may not be known to anyone in this room, but some of you may have walked out on God. You've given up on Him. You've wandered away. You come here now just out of custom. Or maybe you've always come here out of custom. Maybe you're a young person and you come here because your parents make you. And you know that as it relates to spiritual distance from God, you're just as far as this boy was away from his father. You don't think about God the rest of the week. And if that's where you are, again, Jesus' invitation is that you would come to your senses this morning and that you would come to your father. So whether you're the tax collector, the sinner, the prodigal son who's turned your back on God, or whether you're the scribe, the Pharisee, the older brother who's turned your back on the prodigals, the invitation really in the end is the same. Would you come to your senses? Would you come to your Father? Would you come to Him and find the forgiveness that He offers in Christ? 1 Peter 3.18 Christ died once for all the just for the unjust, so that He might bring us to God. Boys like this don't come home on their own. They come home with Jesus. Come, ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore, Jesus, ready, stands to save you, full of pity, love, and power. That's been the message this morning. And then the response is, I will arise and go to Jesus. He will embrace me 
in His arms. In the arms of my dear Savior, oh, there are 10,000 charms. Father, we pray this morning for those who need to come to their senses and come to You through Your Son that they would. Father, we pray for those of us in the room who are tempted to be like the Pharisees, tempted to shun sinners that we see on the streets, sinners that we see in the workplace, sinners that we see in school, sinners in our own family. Help us not shun them, but search for them. Help us to be a part of what You're doing to bring them back to Yourself. We pray that you do this for us in Jesus' name. Amen.